0: Welcome to Mostly Books Meets, we're the team at Mostly Books, an award-winning independent bookshop in Abingdon. In this podcast series we'll be speaking to authors, journalists, poets and a range of professionals from the world of publishing. We'll be asking about the books that are special to them, from childhood favourites to the book that changed their life and we hope you'll join us for the journey. this week I'm speaking to award-winning author J.P. Delaney. J.P. is a pseudonym of author Tony Strong who's also written under the name Anthony Capella. J.P.'s first psychological thriller The Girl Before was an instant Sunday Times and New York Times bestseller and went on to sell over a million copies worldwide. His subsequent books Believe Me, The Perfect Wife and Playing Nice were also top 10 bestsellers. The Girl Before is being adapted into a major television series, and JP has been heavily involved as lead writer and co-executive producer. A TV tie-in edition of the book was published on the 25th of November, and the TV series is due to be released the weekend before Christmas. JP, welcome to Mostly Books Me. Hello. It's so lovely to have you on the podcast. We were chatting just before we started recording about the fact that we met a few years ago, in 2019, and when you came along for your kind of to come along to our shop for a crime author panel. And I can't believe it's actually been that long because obviously the time has just shot by. But it's so great to have you as a guest. So thank you for coming. Yeah,
1: on. well, it's, it's great because it's, you know, you were just saying that you're the only indie booksellers to have one of these podcasts. And I think, I mean, A, that's great. And B, you know, you're such a proactive and vibrant shop. So, you know, it's fantastic to support you.
0: Oh, thank you. Um, so as I do with all my guests, I'd like to start off by going back to your childhood, if you don't mind. Where did you grow up and what was life like for you?
1: Well, I was actually born in Uganda. It was around the time of independence, and my parents were in a part of the country, had to leave very, very suddenly. In fact, this is the sort of anecdote that they always used to tell about that was that they used to have a zip-up blue BOAC Airlines bag, and that was the bag they had to smuggle me out of Uganda in, because I was too young to have a yellow fever injection, but you needed the yellow fever injection to get into Kenya, where they were catching the boat. And so, in order to, so to get through the checkpoints, they had to put me in this bag. But the other part of the story is the thing that really shocks people when I tell them now is that I and my three elder sisters all uh, my mother used the services of one of the village wet nurses, and the wet nurses also worked in the fields, and so they would have a baby on each breast and they would put opium on their nipples to keep the baby sleeping while they were working. So I was addicted to opium at six weeks old <laughs> and at six weeks old they had to, they kept both me and a bottle of opium in the bag. And they would have to give me a little drop of opium to make me sleepy before I went through the, the checkpoint. Um, anyway, that's all before. I don't remember anything about Africa, although my older sisters do. And we then came back. My father retrained as a teacher and I was in Northamptonshire for a while. And then they settled down in um, Hampshire, actually in my grandparents' old house.
0: I have to say, I've asked quite a few people that question <laughs> and I've never had to. A response that involved being smuggled out of a country um, and being addicted to opium. So well done. You've just given me. Yes, <laughs> it was
1: it saying? was an eventful six weeks. <laughs> so, shame I don't. And then, of course, I had to be weaned off opium uh, on the boat on the way home. It's quite a okay, long I'll voyage. And apparently I, I screamed for you know two weeks solidly, having been very quiet and docile through the checkpoints.
0: Oh, my goodness. So you ended up in your grandparents' house, you said, in Hampshire?
1: Yes, yes. And well, and the house that they had lived in, yeah.
0: What was that like? Did you? What was your life like? Were you quite outdoorsy? Were you quite bookish? How, did, how were you as a child? I was
1: quite bookish. I mean, it was a lovely bit of rural Hampshire, and they had inherited some fields and a bit of wood, and so I used to wander around with our dog. You know, that was sort of my job, to walk the dog every day. And um, as I say, my three sisters were all older than me, so I think I was a sort of classic younger kid always sort of happy to be one of the gang, but equally happy on my own when they weren't around because they were sort of off, you know, obviously left home uh, long before I did. So yeah, I remember, I think my aunt gave me a book of Tennyson when I was really quite young, certainly less than, you know, 10 or 11, and just discovering all those lovely kind of, musical poems that Tennyson wrote, you know, and and just actually falling in love with Victorian poetry, which is a bizarre thing for a kid to like. And I I think I decided then I was going to be a poet. You know, that was what my life's ambition
0: that's amazing. It's quite an unusual, like you say, quite an unusual genre to be the one that you kind of first remember. And I like that you made the decision to be a poet. So was that something that you then started to do from a young age, started writing?
1: Well, not then, but certainly around, um, I think by the time I was about sort of 14 or so, I was kind of writing, you know, I was, I, I had sort of notebooks and I was filling them with poetry and sort of experimental stuff. And, um, yeah, I mean, I can't I can't now remember much about it. I don't think I wrote stories, but I was very classic in that I went through that thing of discovering that English was the only thing I was good at at school. And so it became sort of self-reinforcing that, you know, I wanted to spend more and more time doing it and, and studying it. And I was lucky enough to go to a school where you could actually specialize at a very early age, you know, and then. I've kind of got to university and was then never happier than you know because I didn't have to do anything except English unless you count old English which which I don't so I did have to do a certain amount of maths.
0: <laughs> yeah of course so you went on to study English literature at Oxford University which college were you at? St Peter's. Lovely and you graduated with a first class honours degree so it obviously worked for you like you say it was obviously working to your strengths. Did you have ambitions to be an author at that time or was it still something you just kind of did as a bit of a hobby?
1: Very much so and I remember thinking what do I do next and all my friends were going off to sort of jobs in the media and the city and so on and I decided that I was going to do an MPhil and a D fill, not because I had any desire to be an academic, but because I thought that it would give me enough time to be a poet. And um, because I'd done, in those days as a student at Oxford, you didn't have to do any work at all. And, and I hadn't really, you know, I'd done nothing except, you know, read a few books and have some opinions. But, you know, <laughs> you certainly didn't go to lectures or anything, you know, <laughs> boring like that. And then I discovered that as a postgrad student, You had a fairly full diary studying things like medieval bookbinding and handwriting, you know, so that you could be a useful research assistant to some proper academic and help them, you know, transcribe whatever it was they were working on. So I did about a week of this sort of, (laughs) to to me, incredibly dull stuff. I thought, no, this is is not the kind of fun that all my friends are having. And in fact, I thought I would go off and be an advertising copywriter for a couple of years because it would still be sort of writing and using my brain. And then I would come back when I had the idea for a novel and maybe sort of write that. And so I put my place on hold till I was 30, I think, you know, well, you know for, for up to eight years and um, went off to be a copywriter and never came back. I still live near Oxford, but I never, never went back to academia.
0: Assuming, Thank goodness. Yeah, clearly wasn't wasn't the path you needed to follow. So it's interesting So you've, you've said, you've been quoting the past as saying that um, you actually quite enjoyed the structure of working in the advertising industry, whereas some people find it a little bit more, a little bit limiting. What was your career path in that? So you started out as a copywriter, but you ended up at some point being um, a creative director.
1: Yes. And that's kind of progression. To, to be a creative director, you have to have been an art director or a writer you know you have to have actually written and made commercials and things and i only worked properly at two agencies uh, one i stayed at for about 12 years one nearly 20 years and um i just really enjoyed the process of somebody coming to me with a problem and then being really grateful when you solved it you know if you could come up and you work in teams of two which is lovely anyway I was lucky enough to work with some really nice people, very clever people. But, but you, as a writer, you work with an art director, so someone who's been to art school or has done fine art, and you know their brains work in totally different ways, and that's that. You know, you're constantly being challenged because most of the time, as a writer and advertising, you're writing pictures, you're writing a script to describe pictures, you're literally just doing the words on a and an images on a poster, and they obviously have to work together. Usually, work together. Whereas, you know, now I'm a full-time writer, I find the whole process of just sitting around writing books just really difficult. You know, it's just me and the computer. And the computer, you know, never rushes up to me first thing in the morning and says, I've got this urgent problem to solve. If you, can you give it half an hour, I'll be so grateful. I'll get you a coffee. I'll, you know, and then, oh, you know, and obviously there's a certain amount of people being nice to you when they need you in that world. And then they're off onto the next crisis. But Yeah, I just love the kind of buzz and the glamour of it, you know, going off on shoots, working with actors, working with celebrities. Just, uh, I mean, I think it's very different now because obviously advertising is totally driven by Google AdWords and data and metrics. It's all very sort of top down, you know, international strategies translating into local assets that are then reused around the world. I think I was there in the fun days. Um, I certainly started in the fun days and it's sort of been Downhill from then on. So I probably (laughs) got out at the right time too. At the
0: right time, absolutely. So am I right thinking you were still working in your full time job when you actually started to put pen to paper with your first novel?
1: Oh, absolutely. I mean, I I only gave up part time work in advertising. I, I worked three days a week for many, many years, but it was only after The Girl Before was published, probably after Believe Me was published. So because I enjoyed it, I managed to, the second agency I moved to, I managed to go there on a sort of part time contract originally four days a week, then three. And I would write three days a week. And I literally moved at the same time as my first book came out, which was a really terrible... One reason I use a pseudonym, actually, is that um, I'm terrified that somebody might Google my early books published (laughs) under my own name and read them because they're so terrible. But (laughs) luckily, you can't sort of get them on Kindle or anything. But anyway, so I, I wrote a couple of really bad crime procedural books. And then I actually had an idea for a book which would be a bit different from those crime books, which would be about a minimalist architect. And I had this idea and I tried to make it work and I couldn't. So I, that was actually when I sort of abandoned crime and thriller writing. I put it in a bottom drawer and just kind of, I didn't forget about it. I started writing in a totally different genre, um, a sort of romantic foodie sort of genre, if it's the best way to describe it. Many of them historical and, uh, and I had a contract to write more of those books. But each, between each one of them, I would come back to this manuscript I was trying to make work and think, I really like this idea. Because that's one of the other things I liked about advertising. It was all about ideas. It wasn't, you know, there was it was about execution as well. But, the, you know, the, the concept, the premise was, you know, had to be something interesting. And I knew I had an interesting premise in this, but but not an interesting story. So I probably, I spent about, Fifteen years coming back to this idea on and off, but in that time I published about half a dozen books in another genre. Mm.
0: That's incredible you you kept coming back to it over for such a long period of time. So it was something that kept pulling you back. I think you probably just answered my question then because I was going to say so. You did those different genres, and then you moved into your current genre as J.P. Delaney.
1: Actually, there was a, there was another genre in between.
0: Oh my goodness! I,
1: I wrote a trilogy of thrillers. Under the name Jonathan Holtz, and um, again, it's sort of no secret. There's a, references to them on my website, and they were very much in the kind of Sven Larsen Millennium trilogy. I mean, it was conceived as a trilogy. It's set in Italy, which is a country I'd travelled in. I'd done some journalism as well for the Sunday Times, just sort of writing about food and in Italy, and um, I just have a great love for the country, and was just interested in, in its its extraordinary past. You know, after the Second World War, when um, you know, it was surrounded by countries, or almost surrounded by countries that that had become communist, and so it was the sort of front line of the Cold War, in many ways. And um, some of the things that happened during the Cold War actually still affect Italian politics today. So, and the whole sort of um, the power of the Mafia and the Freemasons and. Operation Gladio. So it was a sort of modern day conspiracy thriller with roots in the past. Anyway, so sorry, go on. <laughs> but that, because that, that had a very definitive end as a trilogy, I then actually decided I'd take a year off and just write whatever I could wanted to write in the bottom drawer. Pulled out this manuscript, and I'd written about 40,000 words, about half a book. And I realized if I just threw away the first 20,000 words and started with these two women moving into this house, that actually that could be the, the sort of new way of imagining the story. Um, and that became The Girl Before.
0: So when you were writing The Girl Before, when you actually sat there on your year off putting pen to paper and going, this is actually what I'm, I'm doing now, did you feel at that time that you, you had a hit on your hand or did it just feel very similar to anything you had done in the past?
1: Well, no, I hadn't. I mean, I was aware that things like Gone Girl and Girl on the Train had, had happened. I hadn't really thought of mine as being in the same genre at all. And I sort of said casually to my agent, that this is what I was doing. You know, Do you remember that thing from 15 years ago? He said, well, sort of vaguely. Anyway, but I'm lucky enough to have an agent who has some very famous clients. And he made a special trip to New York to sell a famous client's new book to a publisher. And while he was over there, he said, well, I'll, I'll take your manuscript, which was still unfinished. I, I sort of had half of it again, but it was a different half. And he showed it to two editors while he was out there. One of them never read it. And the other one phoned him next day at the airport as he was about to come home and said, uh, I'd like to make an offer for that book. And uh, he said, well, don't you want JP to finish it first? And she said, no, no, I'll I'll, I'll make you an offer. And and it wasn't a very big offer because, you know, there was no one else who wanted it. (laughs) But he said, you know, I think we should accept because it was Penguin Random House, biggest publisher in the world, certainly in America. And, um, you know, they have a lot of clout. And I remember thinking that it was, I said to my wife, it's a real shame that this didn't happen a month ago because it's the Frankfurt Book Fair next week. And, you know, they could have sold it. But, you know, now I have to finish it and then it'll go to Frankfurt next year. And then I got an email from this editor saying, oh, I'm, I'm sending the first 50 pages to Frankfurt. And by the end of that week, we had 40 publishers bidding for foreign rights. And it was one of those things which happens to one author in a thousand once in their lifetime. (laughs) And I also remember saying to my wife, you know, I must just stop and enjoy this moment because this just, you know, this is the stuff that you sort of hear about and get envious about when it happens to other authors. And then suddenly it had happened to me.
0: So there was a fair bit of pressure then to make sure that the rest of the book was
1: (laughs) was good. Yes. And the editor then said, I'm really going to make you sweat (laughs) on this. She She was a very lovely but very tough New York editor. And between us and our discussions, I wrote 18 different endings of The Girl Before. Oh and goodness. eventually I said to her, look, I really think ending number nine is the one to go for. And she said to me, OK, I'm going to show it to someone who's not a fan of the book. The one person who didn't think we should buy it. Um, and I went, OK, because by then it had sort of circulated around the organisation. and Some people liked it, some people didn't. And she phoned me up the next day and she said, yeah, she really likes it. So... Yeah. Yeah, if you want to do it, you know maybe we can make it work. <laughs>
0: <laughs> well, if you get the Silicon on board, then that's that's no bad thing. So, how long did that process take from the point where you knew you'd, you yeah know, it'd been bought by the editor, and then obviously you have the Frankfurt. When did it then end up being published?
1: Well, that again was weird because it was the Hillary Trump election. They basically said, "Look, we don't think that we're going to be able to publish any books except by big names," while there's, the media is just obsessed with you know we can't get so for someone like you we we need publicity for you and uh it just won't happen so we're just going to put all our debuts on hold for a year oh wow so then I had this very weird time where I knew it was going to be big around the world and I just had to sort of wait very patiently for a year and actually it was useful because it really gave everyone a chance you know my British publishers as well Quercus working with them and to sort of refine a strategy and work out you know how we were going to talk about it and sort of plan so that when we did do a publicity blitz it really was a blitz and it was I'm afraid to say very hyped Uh, (laughs) but it sold over a million copies you know so just in English so that was that was good
0: yeah when you were in that year waiting for your first book of JP Delaney to come out did you then start working on your subsequent books because they then came out quite quickly didn't they
1: Yes, I did actually, and it was it was interesting because, believe me was actually based on an old idea I had actually sort of used in another book under my own name a long, long time ago, but i I just hadn't written it very well. <laughs> um, so I sort of took the same idea and came at it from a different angle. and then the perfect wife, I actually. The Girl Before was originally, before it was published as a book, some scouts got hold of it and it kind of went around Hollywood. And quite a few people wanted to do it because obviously things like Gone Girl, Girl on the Train had been so big. And for a while, Ron Howard was attached to direct it through his his own company. Now I was in America anyway on an advertising job. And I thought, well, I'm here for the weekend. I'll see if I can fly to LA and pitch myself to adapt it because I'd always really enjoyed screenwriting and and had adapted my own stuff sometimes as movies, never got anywhere with them, never managed to sell one. Anyway, I I had a meeting with Ron Howard, who's very nice, and um, he subsequently dropped out because he was parachuted into a Star Wars movie and it changed his whole schedule. Mm-hmm. Um, but there was a producer in the room with him, and um, he phoned me up a, a week later and said, you know, really enjoyed our chat. You know, so sorry, you know, we can't go ahead. But might you be interested in, in an idea I've had? And I sort of thought, well, I don't normally do that, but tell me the idea. And he told me this idea. And, and what had happened was he, he kept a notebook by his bed in case he ever thought of ideas for movies. Mm-hmm. And, and we, he sort of said, I think maybe this would be a better book than it would be a movie because it's quite intricate. And he said, but if it is ever a movie, you know, I'd like to be attached to it as the producer. I said, well, of course, if it's your if it's your idea and I'm, you know. So he'd had this idea in a dream and he just had basically two sentences and these two sentences started sort of growing in my mind and I sort of resisted it for a while. But that eventually became The Perfect Wife.
0: Oh, my goodness.
1: He gets a big thank you at the back of the book, of course.
0: <laughs> <laughs> I, there's so much about that story that I just love. The fact that you flew over and you met Ron Howard and then through a number of random conversations you ended up producing. Fantastic. But I mean, just I love it. That's fantastic. So we'll come back to The Girl Before shortly. But just before we move on, obviously, we're doing what you tend to do when you have books out. We're having a bit of a chat. You go out and you do publicity. Your book that came out Playing Nice in 2020 obviously came out mid-coronavirus pandemic. How was that for you? I mean, how was the experience of publicising and publishing a book? when everything was so strange for everyone.
1: It was. I can't really remember now. I mean, I remember I didn't have an idea to work on during lockdown. It's interesting meeting up with, you know, fellow local writers. There's a sort of gang of us in Oxford who meet occasionally. And those who who had a manuscript to work on before lockdown started found the sort of peace and quiet great. Those of us who didn't have an idea found it almost impossible to have one. And I was in that category I was sort of sitting twiddling my thumbs just hating the experience of you know not writing and not being with people because by then I had become a full-time writer anyway and that was partly why sorry to keep going back to the girl before but um, that was partly why I was so keen to adapt the girl before myself for TV but also to be a producer on it because I wanted that kind of collaboration and you know being with people and very like advertising, being given problems to solve that, you know, will be solved by someone going to a typewriter or computer now and just saying, OK, well, does this work? So that became my lockdown project. So, you know, The Girl Before has been a constant presence in my life where I've done, <laughs> I tried to write it probably 20 years ago now, then did write it six or seven years ago now, and then have sort of rewritten it <laughs> last year. And now I'm sort of at the stage where I probably have to say goodbye to it.
0: Oh, don't say that. Not yet. Um, okay, let's talk about that then. So, how did that all come about? Because we're chatting now because the TV tie-in edition of The Girl Before was published in November, and the TV adaptation is just about to be shown on the BBC our screens, which is fantastic, exciting. Um, but. As you just said, you, you were a, a writer as part of the TV show. You're also a co-executive producer. So how did that all come about and how was the experience for you?
1: It was a great experience. And so when the rights came back to me from Hollywood, that was a sort of fairly familiar pattern where I'd sold options to Hollywood. Scripts had been generated. Big names have been talked about and nothing ever happened. And that is the way with Hollywood, that very little actually gets made, particularly in that sort of what they would think of as a mid-budget, date night thriller sort of slot whereas you know tv at the moment is just so hungry for content with all the streamers and subscription models there's there's money in tv and so good budgets and i sort of just made a decision despite having loved movies all my life and kind of taught myself movie script structure i thought okay well i want this to be quality and the way to do that is to partner up with a sort of reasonably small British production company who are really focused on quality and who want to work with someone like the BBC. And I mentioned this to my TV agent. She then called me back and said, you know, there's a woman who'd like to have a meeting with you. She works for a production company. She used to work at the BBC. They do a lot of work at the BBC. And she made a note in her diary when the option was sold to Hollywood of the date when the option for the girl before would lapse." And she phoned me up and said, I believe that yesterday the option lapsed. Would JP have a meeting with me? Oh, my
0: goodness. And,
1: um, so I had a meeting with her. And it, she's also a novelist herself, Eleanor Moran. And um, we got on really well. And independently, she said to me, I really think this would be a great BBC project. So we took it to one of the commissioners at the BBC, who, funny enough, had talked to me when he worked for a, a film company, and it was doing the rounds as a film. And he basically just said, yeah, great, go away and write a pilot. And I did. And the pilot is the first episode. But I actually wrote, because I was enjoying it so much, and because I'm (laughs) impulsive like this, I actually wrote a draft of all four episodes because I was kind of wanting to figure out where episode one should end and how many episodes there would be. And I always find the easiest way to do it is just to actually do it rather than try and, you know... I always write a synopsis for a book, but for something that's going to appear on the screen, I, I think it has to be more organic than that. And then when they eventually said to us, okay, well, we're thinking of greenlighting this, but we would want it delivered in a year, and that seems like a pretty impossible task, we were able to say to them, well, actually, <laughs> despite not being paid for it, JP has written drafts of all the scripts, so we've got a head start.
0: Fantastic.
1: And so that saved us... I mean, so much time because you redraft scripts, you know, you get notes from so many people in so many levels of the BBC and HBO and actors and, and for production re- reasons, budget reasons. So actually, I kept episode one and four and worked on those. And I found a really brilliant co-writer who collaborated with me on episodes two and three. Effectively, she took my drafts and kind of rewrote them and built on
0: them. Fantastic! And you've got a fantastic cast in this TV series? I mean, how does that feel
1: to be Well, incredible. Absolutely incredible. You know, we just sort of started talking about casting and who we might approach. And then I got a call from Eleanor, the other exec, uh, the other main exec, I think on a Thursday, saying we've just heard that Gugu and Bathurore has had to pull out of, of a project with a very specific time slot because of COVID. I think it was in France where they don't have the same kind of... COVID protocols that our film industry here was able to put in place. And um, it kind of fits with the dates we're looking at Should we get her the script. Because, I mean, Helena said to me, I don't know about you, but I'm a massive fan. And I'd just seen her in The Morning Show. And I've always been a massive fan of hers. But I'd seen her in Black Mirror, where she's amazing. I'd seen her in Bell. I think her beauty pageant movie had just come out. So I kind of watched that over the weekend. I mean, you know, she's an absolute incredible bonafide a Hollywood star. And um, yeah, we got the script to her. And I think within a week, she'd said, in principle, you know, she was interested in doing it. And she became an associate producer. So she sort of had input into the scripts as well, which was great.
0: And how does the process differ for you as a writer in terms of writing for a book versus writing for television? Well, it is
1: very different because the books, my books tend to be internal monologue, you know, you're inside the characters' heads. And with this book, you're inside two very different women's heads. Mm -hmm. But I'm not one of those writers who wants to adapt their own stuff because they want to sort of control it and for it to be the same as the book. It has ended up, funnily enough, quite similar to the book in its structure. But for me, the exciting bits are the bits that are different. And, you know, what happens when you start to work with Actors and producers, and particularly the heads of department, the production designer, and so on, is that you know, they change things. And if you're not comfortable with collaboration and change, then you shouldn't be a TV writer. Mm-hmm. I mean, personally, I loved it. I, I thought that was just. And I remember when um, you know, it's set in this minimalist house, which I describe in the book as being very cream colored and austere and almost like a kind of monk's cell. And it's very, um, it, there's just nothing there. And the architect who built it has all these kind of rules for how you have to live there. You can't have any cushions or ornaments or books or, you know, that's how you know he's a bit toxic when your stage agent says, you can't have any books here, by the way. And um, as a book person, that's just like an instant kind of you know giveaway. (laughs)
0: That would be a no. (laughs)
1: Exactly. for, for, For both of us in the rooms that we can see each other in now. Anyway. The production designer said to me, the very first thing he said was, if I build your house, it will be really boring. You do know that, don't you, on the screen. And I said, yeah, absolutely. You must build your house. Yeah. Uh, we used a line at one point, there's a line of dialogue in the first episode where Emma and Simon are discussing this woman and her boyfriend who had moved into the house. In one of the timelines, they're discussing the fact that the house has a playlist. And Simon says, better than that, this house has moods. And that became our sort of phrase that, you know, this house on the screen had to be capable of being beautiful at first sight, incredibly luxurious, though small, but also at other times, claustrophobic, austere, overbearing, controlling, oppressive, you know, so and it, John Henson, the designer, just created this house that had all these different things. It's partly based on the brutalist architecture of places like the South Bank the Royal Festival Hall. Uh, I mentioned actually in the book, and just there were a couple of references to the script and we beefed these up afterwards. But uh, John was very taken by the idea that this architect had trained in Japan where a lot of minimalism comes from. So it has a very Japanese minimalist feel. It has sort of internal gardens. And um, I mean, it's an amazing house. And I think the extraordinary thing is that no one watching the show will ever realise that it doesn't actually exist. We built it full size, you know, a two-story house inside an abandoned warehouse in Bristol.
0: Wow. I was just thinking when you were describing that, I've not seen the television series yet. I can't wait to see it because I think the book's fantastic. And it will be really interesting to watch it, having talked to you today and looking out for some of those details that when you're just watching a TV show normally, you probably wouldn't notice because it's just just the house they happen to be in. You might be like, oh, that's a lovely house. I'd love to live there. But it will be really interesting with that in my mind now. You've obviously been pretty busy <laughs> over the last year, it's been given that you write for a living. Do you still take time um, and are you still able to read for pleasure?
1: Do you know, the other weird thing about lockdown was that I didn't read mm. and I still haven't got back into reading. And I have, in this genre, endorsements are very important. And I used to be reasonably good about, you know, when I was sent particularly debut novels, having benefited myself from endorsements, I would try and read them and give a quote if I wasn't too busy writing. Now I just find it, I don't know, it's, I hope it hasn't changed my brain permanently.
0: No, you're not the first person to say that to me. I found that people fell into a couple of different camps. So some people just completely dived into books, whereas others like you and in fact i was more in your camp than, than the other one although i didn't stop reading entirely i found it very difficult to process anything complex so i went for a lot more light and fluffy fiction which i do quite enjoy anyway but anything more difficult than that i just couldn't yeah so have you read anything recently what was the last book you read
1: i think the last thing i read in this genre was um an absolutely brilliant book called the nothing man by katherine ryan howard an irish author it's just got a really original premise just beautifully executed, absolutely fantastic. And um, I see, in fact, just I was just googling it on Amazon, I see that actually, Kara also gave it uh, a very nice quote. And I also highly recommend all of Kara's books. And uh, one of the great things about Kara Hunter is that she's so incredibly prolific that she often writes more than one book a year. So you don't have too long to wait for the next one
0: yeah she's really good you mentioned this very briefly earlier on you talked about the fact that you got together with some other Oxford writers during during lockdown and um I'm sure I worked out who a few of those are um but it must be so lovely having that link with fabulous writers you already mentioned Cara I know we've talked about the fact that you know McHeron and Lucy Atkins as well I mean that just must be a really lovely support network to have so close to home
1: Yes, it is. I mean, to be honest, crime writing is an incredibly friendly profession anyway. Ironically. Yes. uh, (laughs) And having written in other genres, I know that this is not always the case uh, in (laughs) in writing, you know, the publishing world. So in fact, you know, when crime writers have books out, they do do a lot of festivals and events. And gradually, you sort of get to know quite a lot of crime writers. And that's lovely. And again, I mean, something that locked down has slightly sort of fractured. I guess it'll take a bit of time to get all those events back up and running.
0: Yeah, absolutely. Heading in the right direction, but it's it's small steps, isn't it? Now, I'm aware of time, We just before we draw to an end, I have a theory with anyone that writes or reads books that everyone has a book that has changed their life or impacted them in some way. Some people agree with this theory, others don't. Do you have a book like that? And if so, what is it?
1: Gosh, so many, actually. Well, that changed my life, possibly not. I mean, obviously, my own books have changed my life, but I don't think that's what your question is. That's not the answer you want. (laughs) I mean, I think there are books that become touchstones in your life. And I remember when I started writing romantic books, I call them romantic. I think that's probably the wrong word. But the way I used to define them to my publisher or anyone who asked was that there are certain books that you reread when you've got flu. And those were the sorts of books that I wanted to have a go at writing. And, you know, I think it's very interesting to know what's your flu list. And mine would certainly have things like I Captured the Castle, the Mitford series, which are now, of course, are also a fantastic TV series. And I think top of that list is a book by a writer who at the time lived in Oxford. I don't know if she still does. Barbara Trepido's Brother of the More Famous Jack. And it was the first book I read that just exuded warmth and joie de vivre. And it's a sort of coming of age story about a bookish girl and her first serious relationship, which is with uh, a sort of academic family in North London. And um, it's one of those books which just has the capacity to sort of warm my heart every time I pick it up. And um, just sort of knowing that it's sort of there on the bookshelves you can see behind me. Actually, in the, in the only bit of the bookshelves you can see, which we were, I keep my sort of special books, you know, the <laughs> books that are my touchstones, just a, cu- just a couple of shelves. And, um, yeah, it's – and I, actually I keep having to rebuy it because I keep lending it to people and never getting it back. So, <laughs> you that. know, she's, she's actually getting a, a good stream of royalties out of me.
0: <laughs> That's fantastic. I like the idea of a flea list. I'll have to have think about what my flea list would be. Anyway, JP, it's been so lovely chatting to you today. It's been so interesting hearing about your career. It's been so fascinating hearing about the upcoming TV series. I can't wait to see it. I wish you all the best with the TV adaptation and thank you so much for joining me on Mostly Books
1: Brilliant. Well, thank you so much for having me. It's been a real pleasure.
0: All of the books mentioned during the podcast are available to buy from the Mostly Books website. This podcast has been presented and produced by members of the team at Mostly Books in Abingdon. If you enjoyed what you heard, please rate, review and subscribe because apparently it helps people find us.